All right, Ivan, Ivan Zhang. So Ivan Zhang. Yes. Okay, it's nice to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I've actually have I actually have some questions I've prepared to ask you, uh, but before we dig into most of the questions I would like to ask you today. Can you give us a brief overview of your background and what you're doing currently and how you got started with what you currently do? Sure. So I, I started in the industry. Uh, this was maybe over a dozen years ago. So okay. I did my master's in the United States and then began work at uh, Bank America, which yeah. was obviously one of the largest banks in the United States. And we're mostly focused on understanding uh, interest rate risk. So I guess this is very related to what's happening in the markets today. Um, but we were very interested in understanding interest rate risk for the bank. Uh, so we, I did that role for a year where we modeled out kind of all the potential future paths that the economy could take and what that would mean for the bank in terms of either losses or gains. Yeah. And, and then I moved on to the role that was more on the uh, high-frequency trading or algo execution of equities. So this is just using machines to trade stocks very quickly for institutional buyers or sellers uh, so that they don't have to be standing at the, staring at the screen all day, clicking buy and sell on their computer. Uh, yeah. So the com combination of those two things kind of led me to um, uh, a role at, uh, under the chief investment office where we're managing the fixed income portfolio. Uh, for the bank. And so this is a unique spot because it's not a client-facing role, even though banks mostly serve clients in terms of money management. This was just managing the bank's own assets. And it was a very unique time because, because of the financial crisis, uh, Federal Reserve pumped a lot of money into the system. So there's a lot of excess cash, but nobody to lend it to. <laughs> and so that was an ironic problem that you had where the bank just had too much money and they needed to make good use of it. And so that excess cash kind of landed into our group. And so our responsibility was to invest it, to generate some income out of it, as opposed to just letting it sit there on the yeah. bank account. So we did that for you know over nearly a decade. And uh, during that time, I did a lot of personal hobby projects. One of them was a crypto mining facility. This was in 2016 when uh, Ethereum was just maybe two years out. Um, and uh, that was an opportunity for us to learn more about blockchain, about how things work and how it could be potentially revolutionary for finance and, you know, uh, not just financial industry, but individuals, right? Because it gives them the potential to control money in a way that they never were able to before. So then you fast forward to 2020 and this new evolution called DeFi or decentralized finance is essentially uh, starting to pick up. It was less than, it was about um, less than a billion by the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And then they exploded to over a hundred billion uh, by the end of 2020. And so when we saw that trend happening, we thought we were early a few years back and all of a sudden we realized we were late. And so then we were like, okay, in 2021, we need to start our company. And that's how Pennyworks was born. Um, and the company, very straightforward, it currently just has a simple uh, premise. We try to provide a, a traditional financial interface, which allows regular businesses and individuals 
to get the benefit of uh, decentralized finance without having to learn how to manage crypto, without learning how to um, understand blockchain transactions and things like that. So the benefits of DeFi as an investment without all the operational challenges of working with uh, crypto. Interesting. Interesting. I, I'm actually going to ask you some questions about Pennyworks and uh, decentralized finance um, DeFi. You know, as um, a, a senior portfolio manager, so you once worked at Bank of America as a senior portfolio manager, and part of the responsibility you and your team under that was managing the bank's portfolio assets of fixed income assets, which went into the sum of 400 billion US dollars to 500 billion US dollars. And you have, that is a very great experience and having to have managed such volume of assets successfully. Then along the line, you delved into investing in crypto and blockchain for the better part of the decade. Yeah, I'm going to ask, because I'm someone who is very interested in personal finance. What investment opportunities are there in DeFi? So in DeFi, so part of it is uh, you need to decide what your risk tolerance is, right? Okay. Yeah, because yeah. As, as you can imagine in crypto, it's one of the most volatile asset classes there is. Yes, uh, the, yes. reason, the reason we started our company is that we wanted to get uh, kind of the closest thing to a solid, well-established financial product that traditional finance would understand. And this is the first kind of more uh, safest version of your uh, participation in DeFi, and that is collateralized lending, right? So uh, mo most of the protocols there that would be uh, big ones called Aave, Compound, MakerDAO, they will generate very low yields, but it's very difficult to lose money on them because for every dollar that you are lending to somebody, they have to yes. put up a dollar twenty-five, a dollar thirty, a dollar fifty, maybe two dollars of collateral, so that in case that they don't pay back, you can take yeah. the collateral, sell it, and then make sure that you get your principal back. So that's the most risk-averse opportunity there. You can consider that as like on the risk spectrum on the leftmost side of the. The other uh, next baby step above that would be probably uh, AMMs or automated market makers. And this is an idea where basically you have an exchange, but it's on the blockchain. And in order for that to work, you need to have two different pools of assets. The, the thing that you want to trade, so let's say it's Ethereum, and then on the other side against what? Let's say dollar. So you have two pools, one of Ethereum, one of dollars. Whenever somebody has Ethereum, they can convert into dollars at a set exchange rate and vice versa. Now, if people do this back and forth all the time, in between, every time you do a transaction, you get some fees, and then all of a sudden, you, regardless of where you are, regardless of who you are, regardless of how much money you are, you can behave just like an investment bank, right? Okay. You yeah. are the market maker, providing liquidity to users, and you getting paid for it. And so that is fundamentally something new that's never been able to be done before. You're not eating, you're not replacing... Uh, a kind of low value kind of businesses what you're doing is you are replacing the core function the high value functions of the bank and you're able to do this in decentralized finance regardless of your identity and regardless of how much money you can put fifty dollars into it and that you could still be a market maker and you'll still earn a pro rata share of the income so it is very 
uh, liberating in that sense and it brings the opportunity to uh, just about everybody that's interested in interacting with blockchain. So that's will be on the slightly more risky opportunity. And then there are tons of these things where uh, fundamentally it is risky because let's say an asset goes up a lot or an asset goes down a lot. Let's say, for example, Ethereum goes up a lot, right? If Ethereum goes up a lot, what happens is in that pool, you have, let's just say, a dollar worth of Ethereum and a dollar worth of dollars. More people want Ethereum. They'll buy up all the Ethereum. So then in that pool, there's just a lot less Ethereum and a lot more dollars, right? Yeah. But that only happens in the world when the Ethereum value goes up. So you're like, well, I missed out because I would have preferred to have just kept my Ethereum, right? So there is risk there for where you could potentially lose some money. It's hard to lose all your money in there, but it's potentially you could lose more than uh, just like if you put in a dollar, you might end up with less than a dollar right, of value. But because of this risk, you get paid more. So it's kind of how you want to balance that out. There's a lot of people that do an analysis to figure out how to make money in there. And then there's easy ones where you just say, well, I'm just going to pick the one with the highest fees and hope for the best, right? So that's kind of where it's in the middle of the spectrum of risk. The uh, third more risky one, but still um, a decent opportunity, is where you do a little bit more of like option strategy. These are very advanced in terms of you need to understand options or at least be comfortable that somebody's doing this on your behalf, understand options. But yeah. uh, because blockchain is able to create these decentralized exchanges, they can also create exchanges for options. And the reason why it's interesting is because options, the price of options are uh, related to how much uncertainty there is in the future, right? So the more uncertain it is, the more expensive it is to buy or sell options. So if it's very expensive, then you can sell these options at a very, very high cost. Yeah. And if and if the situation doesn't happen, so let's say you can sell an option that says, hey, look, I'm only going to start losing money if Ethereum goes to 3000 or above in three months. If it doesn't happen, you make money, right? So that's an opportunity where you take some amount of risk. Hopefully it's uh, uh, um, enough risk that you're able to withstand it, but you get some premium in exchange for that. And if nothing happens, you just keep the premium, right? But because this is options and you allow you to create these conditional events, there is a lot of risk in there. It's almost like a lot of internal leverage. So you could lose all your money doing this if you don't do it right. And so that's kind of where the risk happens. Now, if you do it right, you might be able to earn like 10, 15, 20% on this. There are a lot of these protocols that already offer these false uh, DOVs that essentially just systematically help you sell options against the position that you already have so that you can boost up your income a little bit more than you're just holding the asset like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Right? Okay. So that would be a little bit more advanced and like level three of the risk spectrum. And then the fourth one would be just, you know, Finding crazy coins that nobody knows about and that, you know, that's worth nothing and then going 1,000x, right? Now, in practice, the odds of you finding that nowadays is very low, so I would not want to bet a lot of money on it. But if I did have time, right, maybe I could put like $50 on like any new coin and maybe one of them will go 1,000x and I'll pay for everything else, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, decentralized finance offers financial instruments without relying on intermediaries such as brokerages, exchanges, or banks by using smart contracts on the blockchain. Now, 
It is an emerging financial technology that challenges the current centralized banking system that we have today. A lot of people, most of my listeners, may not really know how decentralized finance works. And you are an expert in this field. Again, I'm going to ask you um, questions on how to manage risk when dealing with um, blockchain transactions and you know, how penny works helps in this regard. But before I get into those questions, can you tell us how decentralized finance works? It's very straightforward. Uh, I think it's much easier first to understand how traditional banks work, right? Yeah. Because decentralized finance is the same, um, but with a little bit extra. So a traditional bank, when you take the money and you put it into the bank, right? Yeah, yes. It doesn't like, okay, I'm going to take your money and I'm going to just leave it into like a vault or a giant safe. It doesn't do that, right? Yes. You give it $10, it's going to it's gonna uh, just record it. So, hey, look, only give me $10, right? And yeah. then I'm going to take that $10 and I will lend it out to somebody to make money, mm -hmm. right? But yeah. you trust, but you, you, you do trust that, like when you go back to the bank, say, hey, I want my $10 back. Yeah. That the bank says, oh, yeah, yeah, you gave me $10, right? So I'll give it back to you, and then maybe I owe you some interest, and that's fine. So you're, you're dealing with a trusted counterparty. Maybe it's a regulated institution, so it's not going to just run away with that $10, right? Now, if I start a bank all of a sudden tomorrow on the, down the street, and I'm going to call myself Ivan Bank, I'm like, hey, Oni, you can give me $10, I'll give you 10% interest, right? Mm -hmm. you, yeah. could do, you could do that, but you, you give me $10, and I could just one run away. Or next day you come back, it's like, can I get my $10 back? And I could be like, what $10? You never gave me $10. I don't remember that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So what is the distinction between these two scenarios? The distinction is that the bank has a very accurate ledger, right? Where a books, where it just remembers that you've done that. And you trust it to remember that you gave it money. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's the only thing. So if you could create a, a trusted or trustless ledger where it will remember for you and assert the accuracy of how much funds you've gave somebody, right? That is essentially the one of the main functions that a financial institution does, right? And what is decentralized finance? Decentralized finance means that instead of banks being the trusted source of those records, Right, it's just a whole network of computers distributed globally that all have one way to agree on the truth, right? And because it's distributed globally, because all your information is copied over on thousands and thousands of different machines, it's very difficult for somebody to come in and say, "Oh, you know what? Oni didn't actually give you ten dollars; he gave you nine. Okay. Right? Yeah. In order for you to be able to do that, you have to simultaneously go on these 10,000 or 100,000 machines, hack into them, change the records on that database and say, oh, yeah, and then let them re-coordinate to do that. And essentially, it's very, very difficult. Difficult, definitely, yeah. Right? And, and, the, and, the reason, and the reason it's difficult, it's not just that there has like, oh, look, on 10,000 machines, there's a little text file that says, hey, look, Oni has gave you $10. It's not even just that. It's that there's a level of encryption into it. And that encryption... Or rather, it's not encryption, that it's, it's more of just like a encoding. 
it's a way to store the information to know that there has been no errors into it, right? And that's where the blockchain components lie because you have, okay, you know, today I'm going to have a little page of the books that says, okay, only gave me $10. Tomorrow I have a new book page that says, hey, look, only gave Ivan $5, right? Now, every day I'm just going to have these little sheets on paper. So ideally, these are stored in order, right? Page one after page two and then after page three, right? You yeah. can also say, oh, look, I'm going to be evil and come in and I'm stealing a notebook and I'm just going to shuffle all the pages around, right? If there's only one guy and there's only one book and they're just the pages are stored that way, it's very easy for you to corrupt the information, right? It's much harder when there's 10,000 machines. It's even harder when there's 10,000 machines that store the, the data in a encoded way that guarantees that the ordering is consistent. And that encoding is very important because if you change something in the middle of that book, right? People, when they reread it based on that encoding, says, well, this is not right. It's broken, right? Because the information on page three relies on the information on page two being correct. You see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not only do you have to change something, a single entry on page two, you have to change page two, page three, page four, page five, page every single thing. Page. Yeah. Yeah. All, yeah. all after to make it correct. So that's even yeah. harder, right? Well, so, well, that's a lot. That's a little bit of work, but that's not a lot of work. It's just 10,000 times more work, but I have a computer. I can do that, right? Now, that, that's even, you can think of that way, but that's where the encoding lies. The encoding is such a way that it's extremely difficult to create these fake pages. Yes. Very difficult. It's so difficult that you have to use GPU mining to do this. And that's exactly why there's an entire mining industry that is being born to be able to create these new pages. Creating new pages essentially creates new blocks. And they're all tied together in a chain so that it makes sure that every single piece of information that goes from one block to another one is consistent with the information before it. That's where you get the term blockchain. Blockchain, yeah. So three levels of defense. One is that you have multiple parties storing the same information. Second of all, the, the information that is stored is, is encoded, so it's very difficult to change just one piece. And third, the changing requires hashing, which is extremely, extremely difficult to do. And because of these three components, essentially you have a trustless bookkeeping system. And that is essentially most of the value that a bank has because everything is built on top of a trustless bookkeeping system. Interesting. That's a very brilliant um, way of explaining this. You know, we have blockchain today. There is blockchain, uh, smart contract, and more recently, Web3. Which is now, which has now become a cultural theme for division of a new better internet. Now, at its core, Web3 uses blockchains, cryptocurrencies, and NFTs to give power back to the users in, in the form of ownership. These three things, blockchain, smart contracts, and Web3, how do they work together to provide gotcha. a yeah, sophisticated, trusted platform for carrying out financial transactions? Perfect. So, I mean, this leads exactly to the next point, right? So now you, you have this blockchain, which is basically the truth, right? You're just like a, store, a storekeeper of all the, all the correct information. 
then what happens is, well, okay, I have all this information, but what kind of information am I going to store into it, right? Now, for traditional bank or for the Bitcoin network, the only kind of information you're storing is basically who sends Bitcoin to who else, right? Party A sends Bitcoin to party B. And then there's some other ones about checking and coding all that stuff. But that's that's a very limiting language, which means that the, the whole story that you can make is all just like transactions A, B, back and forth, right? So that's what a traditional payment system is if the information you're storing is just transfers, right? Now, you can store other things. You could store like a story, right? Like Oni and Ivan went to the park and then we went to do some activity afterwards. That's interesting. It's interesting, but it's not super helpful because if you want to just store a book, maybe you could just do it on YouTube or a video or something. Blockchain is not the best for that. Blockchain is the best to, to store information in which multiple parties need to confirm what the truth is, right? And so, hey, what about investment? or arbitrary contracts between people, right? Because if you are able to say, hey, look, I'm just transferring Bitcoin, oh, that's great. But what if I had a representation of something else in real life, right? And that represent it could be a house, right? So I'm saying, hey, look, I'm gonna have a little piece of a code, right? Just like when you do programming, there's a lot of these uh, blobs that just says, hey, look, this information represents a house or a car or something, right? If you play a video game, there's like a car object. It's not a real car, but it's it's a car object that maybe you can drive around or something like that, right? But same yeah. thing in the blockchain, you can say, hey, look, we're gonna create this thing, right? Now, whoever is enforcing that this car item matches with a real car in the real world, that's outside of the blockchain, right? Because that requires legal, that requires physical enforcement and things like that. So. The idea is that the moment you bring those um, physical assets or financial assets and you represent them on a blockchain, then you can just do transactions on them, right? So if I create that, I say, look, this blog of data is going to be a house. Now what I can do is, oh, well, look, you know what? Ani is going to give me $10 and I'm going to give him the house. And that's okay. Well, that seems like pretty obvious, but the moment you do that, you just created an entire deed land title registry system right that is incorruptible yeah and all you all you did was just instead of just representing bitcoins or ethereum you said well now i'm gonna have a house item in the line item there okay that that is fundamentally essentially if you think about it and then the legal system if it can enforce that kind of system that is essentially the invention of private property right the enforcement of private property claims and so on and so forth that's very powerful Similarly, you could be that, well, instead of a house or car, this is actually an investment contract, right? So it could be like represent a stock, right? So it could represent a stock, let's say it could be like Tesla, right? Everybody loves Tesla, right? What do you actually need to trade Tesla? It's actually very little. You just need to know what the price of Tesla is. If you don't care about being an actual shareholder, if you don't care about going to the board meetings and asking Elon Musk questions or whatever, but you just want to like bet that the price of Tesla is going to go up because you believe in the future of electric cars. You just need to say, hey, look, if we can also store the prices of the Tesla stock at any time, yeah, right? And, mm -hmm. then, and, then, and then we just need to have a little contract that agrees that like, look, if, you, if Tesla was $100 now and it goes to 50, then I make 50 and you give me $50, right? 
all of a sudden you just replicated all of the exchanges and stock exchanges and future exchanges in the world just by adding that type of information into the blockchain right now you can see where i'm going with that right so the more you add these representation of things into the blockchain you can now have the code which is a smart contract piece that's finally comes in be the enforcer it's not a third party it's not a lawyer everything is already in the blockchain so you can just say look smart contract code you know only and i are going to make a bet and then we're going to do this on tesla stock right and then i want to bet that if it goes up by 50 dollars uh that i make money and then uh, if it goes down by 50 dollars only makes money right <laughs> And the nice thing is you don't have to trust that this guy will give the money because it's just this code. It's just, you can see the code. It just says, Hey, look, if Tesla goes up, give the money to Ivan. If Tesla goes down, give the money to Oni. Yes. Right. Awesome. Yeah. So now you're able to replicate institutions, right? Instead of the brokerage house being the one deciding that you made this much money. The smart contract is deciding instead of brokerage house or like the the city government or whatever deciding who owns the, uh, the house the smart contract tells you right so you can see the more you can add to this you can build a whole host of systems where people have direct control of both financial and physical assets just by interacting with the blockchain so then the next level, when you go to Web3, what does that mean, right? There could be completely open-ended. Like, for example, a lot of people, they're tweeting, right? They're posting messages and things like that. Who owns those messages? Legally, Twitter does. Yes. No, Twitter does, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's not a big deal. Like, you can add, you can add messages, delete messages, and you trust that Twitter does the right thing. But, you know, Twitter, if it doesn't like you, it just shut you down exactly right but yeah. your online presence right so now if you think about it as a broader sense web3 if you can inject those tweets those records onto the blockchain or some other side chain or kind of storage medium you can say my online identity is not beholden to any company anymore yeah. right what i said what i wrote stays and maybe some people would like to uh, build a website that presents the information in a nice way. And that could be a Twitter, decentralized Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't like the way that they set up their policies, but they cannot mute you because you're not conforming to their terms and policies. Yeah. Right? And so that becomes the web three part where it's not uh, just about financial assets anymore. It's about all sorts of other activity that then uh, you are in direct control of as opposed to traditional institutions interesting now blockchain smart contract these are really interesting topics that given time you have you can develop a whole lot of speech lectures and you know talks from each of them and of course we are going to have um, another conversation where we perhaps talk about each of these technolo um, technologies, their features and everything around them. One interesting feature of blockchain is the security that is associated with it. So blockchain um, prides itself to have one of the most advanced security systems on the web. I want to also talk about cyber security because there are dozens of online scams Broad and you know tactics that scammers use online to lure their victims and perpetrate um, cyber crimes. 
how can someone protect themselves from online scammers, hacks, and internet fraud? So most of the hacks happen not because it's that it's breaking the security or something, right? Most okay. of the hacks happen and fraud. It's really just convincing people to do something <laughs> that they otherwise would not do, right? So one one of the examples is somebody like you know the, the, you know as recently on the news, um, like a dating site, right? So it's, it's not what you expect, but it's a dating site. People get connected and they believe they fall in love, and then one of the persons says, "Hey, look, have you seen this platform? I see mm -hmm. that it makes a lot of money. Obviously, everything's fake about it. So like, they get the, their partner to invest like a thousand dollars." And because the site is fake, it's like, hey, look, you just made $20, uh, 20% in like uh, a week, right? You should put more money in it and more money in. But it's not mm -hmm. a real exchange. It doesn't do anything. So that is yeah. a hack. That's nothing related to crypto, right? But it could be crypto focused because, but, hey, look, this is a crypto exchange and these things are going to go 1,000x. So it's just using the name to kind of influence people to just send them money, right? So that's like a standard way where actually a lot of money is lost. The other one, more sophisticated one, is where okay, people actually hack uh, an individual's computer, but, uh, but it's really just because the individual's not storing things in a safe way, right? Yeah. So, for example, if you have your password to your bank account just on a text file on your computer, your bank account could be hacked, right? And it's not really a hack, really. They're just like, oh, I'm open the computer, I see the password, copy it, and I just say, hey, look, go to the bank, log in, send the money out. Right, so a lot of things are, are, are being compromised is done that way. The third way that's even more sophisticated is where legitimately they are standing in between you and what you actually want to do, and then changing the information before you authorize it. That those are actually quite quite sophisticated, and uh, a lot of people um, do fall for those hacks. And that is one where if you're operating natively already on a blockchain, right? Uh, it's hard to avoid unless you're vigilant. And a few tips that I would give is first, if you can, right? Get a hardware wallet. Because a hardware wallet is a closed system that nobody... It's very difficult for information on the wallet to be corrupted. Because there's one way. All it does is just signs transactions, right? which means that if you have a wrong transaction, you can always just say no, right? But the separate thing about hardware wallet is most of them show you what the transaction is. And that's very important because that's the last line of defense. If somebody like, uh, let's say, hacks the actual site, right? So let's say somebody hacks Twitter. And for some reason, Twitter is able to send like Bitcoins. But instead of sending it to Oni, it sends to Ivan, right? You don't notice, but the thing is that when you... When the transaction says, hey, look, I need this to be approved, and it gets sent to your hardware wallet, the hardware wallet will say, you are sending $10 to Ivan, right? Yeah. And it's important that you see that it's Ivan and not Oni. That is the last line of defense for you, because if, if you honestly approve a transaction that sends to Oni, that's exactly, goes back to the, like, the Tinder or like the dating inside app. You just decided to do something that you didn't want to actually do. So the best tip is, if you're going to do transactions and you're familiar with interacting with blockchain, 
make sure you're interacting with the actual contract that you think they're interacting with. Make sure you're calling the function that you think that you're actually calling when the smart contract. So if you're using MetaMask, which is one of the most popular ones for all EVM compatible chains, it will tell you what contract that you're interacting with, what, uh, what the function you're trying to call. Is that what you're actually trying to do, right? If there's any point in time in which the operation that you think is doing is not intuitive, don't do it, right? And then the last line of defense is when you click OK on MetaMask, and the issue is your computer is not a safe environment. It could be compromised. The last okay. line of defense is when you click on MetaMask, it sends you that approval to the hardware wallet. You got to go check what the actual transaction is. Is it still what it says on MetaMask? If it is, then you're okay. But if it's not, uh, you should not you should not approve it, and you pr probably should also get a new computer because your your current one, right? Yeah. And the yeah. idea is never do any of this thing in a rush. Never do it in a rush, and that's why it's very difficult because a lot of times people are really excited for like NFTs, right? So, oh, somebody, a new artist is coming out with this new collection of of art, and you have to fight for it, right? And what happens? Some other scam creates another contract which is exactly the same right it has yeah. the same name or whatever and then they pretend to be the artist and then you're like oh i'm buying this and then it's not the same guy <laughs> right and you're doing this in a rush because you need to be the first one or the first 10 or 400 to get it and so you're not looking clearly and that's when you get scammed right True. so the idea is never never be in a rush there's nothing that you it's that you need so bad that you can't wait for another five or ten seconds, right? Your life is never going to change in that way, right? Because especially like if the opportunity really is like that, it's you're probably not the first in line to take advantage of it, right? If it's like oh look, all you need is fifty dollars, and then you're going to be like uh, you know a millionaire next week. Why is it that you're the one that's getting that opportunity? How is it that it's up to you to make that 999000 and not some other guy that's more connected than you? Yeah. That's more familiar with the project or that knows more about the blockchain or that's more familiar with the artist or involved with the person more, right? Exactly. So, so really, it's about being more humble. You're not that special. <laughs> There's <laughs> nobody that's like, oh, we absolutely need you to be the one doing this and we'll give you millions of dollars for you to do okay. these like, very simple things. Right? So when you realize that, a lot of the hacks, 95% of it is social engineering. It's not a technological issue. It's not a design issue. It's social engineering. Uh, you can avoid that, and that's within your control. And then there's the very last set of hacks, which is like the contract is defective. Right? That, honestly, as an individual, is very hard to avoid. You can look at those projects, you can see how well they're audited, but at that point, you need a level of expertise where you need to understand smart contract code, you need to understand basic security, maybe even computer security in general design. And that's something that, as an individual, it, it's hard to do, which is why I would say, if you want to get into blockchain, don't do the latest and greatest and newest thing, do the oldest thing. And the best thing you can do to protect yourself is, has this thing been around for more than six months? Has this thing been around for more than one year? If one year passed and nothing bad happened, and because there are a lot of smart people trying to hack it, because if there's a lot of money in it, they would want to do that. If it's been already a year, then it's less likely that there'd be an issue with it, right? Nothing is guaranteed. But again, that's where it is. Let's step into something new slowly.
Interesting. Uh, talking about keeping cryptocurrency assets safe, uh, there, there, there is a lot of talks recently about early retirement. Um, a lot of millennials want to retire early. And yes. one approach here, yeah, they do this is by investing, making investments and saving as well. Now, a lot of persons trust cryptocurrency. In fact, they are fascinated with cryptocurrency and want to make most of their investments in cryptocurrency. They want to save most of their money in cryptocurrency so that they would be able to retire early. Now, given the credit cryptocurrency has, how can someone optimize their investments to be able to retire early? Well, uh, uh, so there's a lot of things going on, right? So I can't, in five minutes, I will tell you how to retire rich. That's not going to happen, right? If, okay. if anybody's going to... If everybody is, well, I will tell you the best I can so that you can get on the good course, path, yeah. right? Yeah. But it goes to the same theme that I said before. If anybody's from promising you in five minutes to just tell you the secret that you get you rich, it's probably yeah. a scam, right? Yeah. You just got to be realistic yeah. about it. But what you want to yeah. do is understand you're, you're excited about blockchain because of what, right? And then I, I would say you should be excited about blockchain and Web3 because of the things that I mentioned before. It gives you more control over your financial life it also gives you more uh control over institutions that's supposed to be uh, medi mediating between different parties right because smart contracts are able to take the judgment and a third party or middleman out of a lot of the process so it's supposed yeah. to reduce costs for a lot of things that otherwise would be very expensive especially in the united states le uh, lawyers are very very expensive Right, so it gives you more agency over what you can do. Right, it's not like automatically like you just get more money. It just means you have more control. Right, nobody can mute you. Nobody can prevent you from sending funds. Nobody can prevent you from investing anything. But it's also like nobody can prevent you from shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, that is the key you have to remember. So that's the power that blockchain gives. It's empowering to the individual to be able to control their financial lives without anybody else interjecting in terms of the long-term investments right uh it's still very difficult because nobody knows what the actual valuation metrics are for uh, blockchains or crypto in general right especially because most of these projects are developed by teams in the united states that have to follow securities law they cannot say hey look by the way if you just hold this you're gonna have a dividend right so sometimes they have these things and what ends up happening is hey look if you hold this and you stake it you're gonna earn 50 percent a year and what happens? Sure, you're earning 50% year, but the coins just drop like 90% in value, right? Mm -hmm. So one easy way to understand is to understand where fundamentally is the money coming from? Is that source of money sustainable, right? So one example for that I would say is sustainable would be like Ethereum or Bitcoin. And the reason for that is because people actually use it. You use uh, the Ethereum network, you pay transaction fees in Ethereum, some of that income because of the the merge goes back to the people um, that are processing the network and then the rest gets burned which means it's almost like a share buyback right so it's you know there's less and less of them over time that accretes value to the holders of ethereum right yeah. that that's fundamentally novel so the where is the money coming from from legitimate users that want to operate on the blockchain that's a sustainable source of revenue because everybody that's using the blockchain 
is not specifically speculating on Ethereum. They might be, but they're also buying NFTs. They're doing DeFi. They're just transferring money, right? Their usage is what's driving the income for the chain. That is the sustainable income model. So if you put money into it, at the very least, you can say it's not a Ponzi. But, you know, even that, like a lot of people debate about it because of how uh, validation scheme works. But that's a level advanced topic. For anything else that you want to put the money in, it's likely that a lot of these projects, they're like, it's just all hype. It's like, oh, we're going to do all these cool things. Great, right? Or there's going to be so many people use it. Okay, that's great. And like, we're going to give you these 75%. But the rewards are in the token that they just made up. You just made up a token, and now I'm going to give you 50% more token. If the token was worth zero, then 50% of zero is still zero, right? So you don't want to be in a trap where the thing that you put money in is something circular like that, right? Yeah. The second aspect of it that's independent of crypto specific, but it's very relevant today is the inflationary uh, uh, environment that we're in, right? Ideally, if you have a fixed quantity good like gold, right? If you look at over a hundred years, basically just one straight line up versus the dollar, right? Because there's inflation, yeah. it's built in. Sometimes inflation is low, sometimes inflation is high. But if you look at it on a long-term scale, if you're like 25 and you're going to be like retiring at 65, in 40 years, do you think that the gold price would be lower in dollar terms or higher in dollar terms? Right? It doesn't take a lot of thinking. Like it's probably very, very hard for the gold price to be lower in dollar terms 40 years on regardless of what happens, no matter what. Right? So could blockchain technology and established Ethereum blockchain or other crypto blockchains fit a similar role to gold, right? A lot of people are already saying, right, Bitcoin is the digital gold. If you believe that narrative and you think, well, if, uh, you know, inflation is, is pretty high, maybe it's going to be under control, maybe it's not, but what is it going to look like in 40 years time? Right? Yeah. That's the train of thought you want to think about. Because these things are fixed quantity. There's not going to be more Bitcoins, right? Uh, but yeah. the thing is that mon money, right, is actually also just arbitrary. It's just whatever government just decides to make more of it, that's what money is, right? So, again, it gives you more control over your wealth because historically, governments have been taking money from the, the people that have the least, right? Yeah. You save money, and then inflation is the way that you lose all your money. They're not going to say, hey, look, we're going to tax you more. That's just not popular, but they don't need to. All they got to do is just increase inflation by 10% and you lost 10%, yes. right? But they didn't take any money from your account. They didn't do anything visible directly to you. Yeah, You're just like, oh, this weird force, like inflation is happening, right? I wonder why nobody's to blame. There's all these macro factors. Well, no, <laughs> if you never print the money, it's very, very difficult to have uh, inflation. You might have deflation, which is another problem, but you'll not, not have inflation because you just don't have supply of money, right? So the monetary mechanism is where people frame everything as this is worth that much money. This is worth that much money. That is the unit of account, right? And so whatever country you are, you're, you're in, you operate in that unit of account. But the thing is that if you can't trust governments in general to be able to steward your money properly, control inflation, make sure that it doesn't uh, uh, become used for whatever their budgetary needs. Blockchain and crypto now is a way to opt out. Right? 
So I'm not saying that you'll make more money in the real terms. Maybe you'll be the same in like inflation adjusted terms, but at the very least, you'll be better off than holding fiat currencies when you have no say in how much fiat gets created. And it's perfect that we're talking about this right now because Ethereum, since the upgrade that happened essentially a month and a half ago, uh, has almost become net deflationary, which means the supply of Ethereum is decreasing every day as more and more people use it, right? If more people are using it and the supply is decreasing, mathematically, uh, you know, it's not guaranteed, but like uh, that just means that um, each owner of Ethereum has more claim to the value of the network because you are owning larger, larger share of the network. Yeah. Right. So that's how you want to think about it in the long term. If you really want to say, I want to retire early, but it may not even retire early, but have the opportunity to retire where you're not holding all this stuff that's called fiat. And then look, a lot of people never experienced in, uh, inflation in their lifetimes, right? Especially since 2000, uh, you know, 1990s and onwards, right? 30 years of stable, low inflation they kept the whole life savings in fiat and all of a sudden the one time that they're retiring now in the 2020s when yeah. they need fixed income and low inflation this is where inflation is 10 percent in the uk eight plus percent in the us and europe right and then uh, even more crazy in other countries like uh, turkey argentina right that's extreme injustice you work hard for 30 years all of a sudden it's like well look, look we need to inflate and you never were able to say no before. Now you can. So interesting. And your, your, your touch on that inflation aspect is really amazing and interesting because it's actually um, prodding my view about how cryptocurrency can actually help holders tackle this inflation problem, uh, which kind of leads me to the next question I want to ask you. I want you to talk to us about the ways blockchain, cryptocurrency, Web3 is um, disrupting industries today. Now, the control that uh, agencies, governments, and uh, these big financial institutions have over the economy, the global market environment, business, people's money, and things like that. Uh, a lot of places actually definitely want these things to be this kind of control to be taken away from these big players and that is the promise blockchain holds where it gives it decentralizes uh, the finance structure and it gives individual autonomy can you talk to us about the industries you see blockchain and web3 disrupting yeah, so I mean, the first one that I gave was essentially investment banking, right? And, and financial yeah. aspects of it is probably the most ripe for disrupting. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that financial services are typically one of the most regulated uh, kind of businesses uh, in general across most countries, right? So they're not going to give up very quickly or easily, <laughs> right? So that that yeah. is the unfortunate part. Yeah. Uh, um, other than that, you know, most businesses, they're not, it's not like there's like a secret club where everyone just goes and agrees on preventing other people to go in. Obviously, they like to do that, but it's also highly legal, illegal in a lot of countries to do like collusion and stuff like that. A lot of people just want to get a competitive advantage 
to be able to do their businesses better than somebody else's, right? You're like a small business owner or a medium-sized business owner. Uh, you're not a central bank or whatever, but you just make individual decisions. Can I make my operations more efficient using uh, blockchain technology, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of things that especially requires coordination. So in finance, for sure, you need at least two parties to do something, right? Either trade or do agreement, sell something, right? In supply chain, is also uh, some aspect of it where it's hard to keep track of things, right? You ship something, it gets lost, like who had it, who's handling it between like the original manufacturer or producer of like the goods to the final consumer that could be like 15 or 30 hops right so there's opportunities there to dramatically improve logistics efficiency to make sure that we're getting the right goods at the right time by using blockchain technology to at least have that record right because when you have the record it's very hard to be tamper proof and potentially you can reduce fraud you can reduce like smuggling all the other stuff because when you through the process Right. Yeah. Third one, for example, land title registries that unfortunately is also a little bit hard to dis uh, disentangle because it requires the coordination of typical governments. Right. Like whoever is the one that's already stamping. This is the official record. This is who owns the house. Right. If they were able to put it on the blockchain, one it'd be more transparent because everybody would see it. Right. Um, yes. But the other one is that it's just less prone to error because uh, when you transact, two party has to agree, potentially both the seller of the house as well as the buyer. One guy has to transfer the money. The other one has to transfer the house. And the nice thing is that when things happen on a blockchain in a specific transaction, multiple events need to occur at the same time for the transaction to be valid. And that's a very unique property of blockchain that doesn't exist in real life. Right? So when you buy a house or sell a house, a lot of people, at least in the United States, they come and there's people signing out sorts of documents. Everybody's happy at the end of the day. Right? But then they have to go and file it with the city or file it with the government and say, look, the house has changed or whatever. So what if the one guy goes in and just gets hit by a car? Yeah. No house for you, right? And it's unlikely, but I'm sure it's had happened sometimes where somebody bought a house and somehow it ended up no house because, you know, some accident happened in between when they filed, the, they signed the paperwork and it was filed with those institutions, right? And then you have to coordinate because it doesn't happen at the same time. Maybe you get the house later, but the money transfers the day after and so on. So there's this gap. So what happens is the house burns down in between the, those two times, right? And you cancel a transaction. It's really unclear, right? So that's also ripe for discussion, uh, disruption, but it does require coordination with governments and things to participate because they're ultimately right now the arbiters of private property and who, who uh, owns what, right? Um, and then the third one is much more like on a social aspect of it, uh, your digital identity. Uh, that's a little bit harder to say whether blockchain is extremely um, disruptive or not, because right now the blockchain technology is kind of like an old school computer because it's super reliable. It's not very fast. <laughs> it's just not right. If you need to copy something over 10,000 computers across the globe and make sure everybody agrees on the same thing, that takes a lot more time than just one computer, one company, uh, agreeing on the same thing, right? Um, yeah. So there might be a situation where uh, someday you're going to have much more of a digital identity that you can control, uh, but maybe it could be hybrid. Like some of that information is going to be stored by third parties outside the blockchain, and maybe yeah. some core, core parts of it will be on the blockchain. One thing that hasn't come up yet is uh, a blockchain, uh, um, how should I say this, a native kind of uh, uh, a person NFT, right? So is there an NFT 
is there an NFT that represents Oni, right? So right now there's like, you can buy an NFT, you can say, oh, I am this NFT or whatever, but it's yeah, not like this yeah. is the person, right? Because yeah. ideally, if you have something like this, and if you can keep it private, but also incorruptible, then you can say, this is my identity. So you can walk to a restaurant or walk to some government office, or what you can just do all these things. And they don't even need to, to like check a card that could be frauded because you can have a thing where only you can sign, right? Mm-hmm. And then... Because right now, nobody knows who it is. In fact, you don't know if one address is one person or 10,000 addresses all run by one person, right? That's not easy to, to set up right now. So maybe at some point, we'll be able to disentangle that or have a registry of identities that are tied to crypto uh, addresses. And that's not something that's like made up because it already exists, right? So like... Um, for example, government Estonia, they have all these like digital identity uh, system where they had a precursor to the blockchain. So health records, uh, you know, bank records, all the other stuff, it's all coordinated to there. And then you can also see who accessed it for what reason, right? And you have very tight control about your personal information, your health records, right? So right now in the United States, it's all governed by laws. So People don't share things and they, they, they avoid doing that. But it's really just say, hey, look, you have a potential of, of being fine if you do. But there's really nothing like guaranteeing that, right? Whereas if you move a lot of this personal sensitive information onto the blockchain and add a privacy layer to it, it literally could be whoever needs to know that information has to request your access every time. And you and only you or your family member or relative are the only ones that are able to give access, Right. Right now, if you sign up for any banking or service, you have to put in all your address, all your identity information every time. And that makes it so that like it's private, but everybody has it. Oh, yes. <laughs> right? True. As, as yeah. opposed to one place where you have it, and then uh, the bank maybe asks for it, or maybe they don't even ask for it. It's like, can you certify that the ONI is from Nigeria? And you yeah. could just sign something and it says yes. Right? Yeah. That would be better. They, they just need to know that you're from Nigeria. They don't actually need to know your address, right? Yeah. Same thing. Can you certify that the only is above 18 years old or something for whatever? Maybe you need to drink beer or something, right? Yeah. It would be great because you share less information, but it's also more secure, more trusted. So that could be ripe for disruption. It's actually really amazing. The, the points you've raised so far in this discussion uh, that has actually given me a broader insight into these um, issues and topics. This is where I wanted to talk to us about penny works. And before we start that, I would definitely want to have another conversation with you on the show again, where you get to tell us more about these topics because you've actually raised some very interesting points on the subject. Um, you are currently focused on using the power of Web3 to give people more agency over their money. And that is where I want you to talk to us about Pennyworks. Because definitely before you started Pennyworks, you actually have this wealth of experience that must have um, given you the ability to do what you currently do. You know, having been a portfolio manager with Bank of America and managing assets that has run into billions of dollars, it's an experience that is really worthwhile. Can you talk to us about Pennyworks and how it is helping individuals like myself to um, have more agency, agency or control over their finances? Yeah, so I think uh, we are starting small. Um, the idea is that all the things that we're doing now 
you could do yourself right after this podcast, right? We're not doing anything that is amazing in terms of only we are allowed to do. And that's the beautiful part about this. We're just leveraging the benefits of blockchain. Uh, unfortunately, right now, blockchain is both uh, operational, so it's like a tool that you need to do something. It's also where investments are. But in traditional uh, finance, these things are very separate, right? If you want to invest, you just click buy, and that's it. There's no interaction with it. Uh, but you also need a lot of tax forms, all the other stuff. It has to be integrated with the current legal system. So we're starting Pennyworks is a, a cash management al uh, alternative. Currently offers around 5% yield. Uh, it's limited to accrediting investors only for U.S. residents. Uh, but that's kind of our uh, minimum viable product that's we're starting. And we're hoping to be able to bring that on to um, the, the broader public, both in the United States and eventually internationally. So that I say, hey, look, I want to be able to participate or take benefits of DeFi, but I don't feel comfortable using my wallet. right? I don't feel comfortable signing hardware um, signatures. I don't feel comfortable parsing the blockchain and understanding what's going on. So there would be a space where somebody says, hey, look, but I do believe that these guys can do this better than me. Right? So we're not saying that you have to do everything yourself. We're not saying that you have to opt out of having a third party. We're saying that you have the option to. You have the choice to say, I can do this myself or I can get somebody that I, I trust to do things. And that's just how things are in regular you know, economy for anything you want. You can lower your lawn, lawn or you can get somebody else to do it, right? Yeah. So we're starting with this very, very uh, conservative approach. And I think the product is important because in the times of inflation, stocks are losing money. Uh, you know, Even bonds are losing money because the rates are going up. Uh, where do you put your money? You put it in a bank account. Okay, well, you have inflation, so you're still losing money in real terms, right? So all we're doing is providing a product that is uh, pretty um, boring, so to speak, but really able to help you a little bit towards mitigating the impacts of inflation uh, and uh, help you sleep at night because it's not very risky activity, right? Over-collarized lending, despite the fact that... Um, Crypto has gone down 70%. We've not suffered any losses. Uh, and we've been able to consistently deliver for our users. So that's what uh, we've been working on at Pennyworks. Interesting. This has been a very fascinating discussion. And I must tell you, I really learned a lot. You know, and just so you know, I'm inviting you on the show again. Yeah, so that you get okay, to sure. Yeah, definitely, because uh, there are so many things I want us to talk about. Uh, and one subject that is also pretty impressive these days is the metaverse. Perhaps on our next uh, yes, meeting, yes. You, yeah, because you're very knowledgeable in the financial and crypto world space, and you have this very interesting way of explaining things to listeners in a way everybody will understand. And that is something I really want to enjoy again some other time. So I'm heading to your share, uh, booking link to schedule another time with you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Ani. We appreciate being there. Thank you. I'll catch you later. Yeah, see you soon.